Would you open God's precious holy word to Psalm 68? It's generally viewed as a psalm that was part of the processional praise as the Ark of the Covenant was taken from uh, what house of Abinadab to the place that had been prepared where the temple would be built, not by David, but by Solomon. But everything was arranged by the time Solomon became king, uh, that it was just a matter of getting the work started to build the temple. So a psalm by David, even though the temple did not exist, he mentions the temple and the sanctuary. They did have a model. They had the tabernacle. They had a model to go by. And certainly David knew beyond any shadow of doubt that the temple would be built on Mount Zion. So it is a time of, uh, of joy. It's a time of worship. It's a time of reflection as this most important event in scripture takes place the moving of the Ark of the Covenant up to the place of Mount Zion where then it will stay when the temple is built. So the attention is on our God and our King. First of all, judgment comes in view uh, as we consider. And again, I tell you, I think I'm, I have one additional verse from the, from the Hebrew text. So don't get confused if I'm in one verse and, and yours, is, yours is, an, is a verse less than mine or whatever. It's all the same stuff. For the conductor, a psalm, a song of David, let Elohim rise. Now there is an overall idea here of ascension. Going from where it is, the ark, and the people who are, of course, bringing the ark up to ascend from the place where it is up to the place where it will be. Let Elohim rise, his enemies scattered, and let those who hate him flee from before him. David, to this point, had enjoyed uh, a series of victories. The enemies of God were stopped by the forces of David, defeated time and again. And it was a statement to the people of God that he cares for his people, even though sometimes they were outnumbered and even to some extent, maybe even outmaneuvered. And in some cases, the Philistines had better weapons of war, but it didn't matter because God was with his people. Another interesting uh, thing about this psalm is that so many Words that are used in the Old Testament to that are that are translated either God or Lord or Almighty. David uses practically all of them here in this psalm. As smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before fire, the wicked will perish. At the presence of Elohim. 
Whenever, whenever God granted the king the right to go and do battle, it meant that the presence of God was with the king and with, with the army of Israel. And there was nothing that the army, the other army could do. They would melt in the presence of the armies of God. Led in this case, in this time frame, led by King David. So this is, a, this is an exclamation. Now, verse, what is my verse two? Probably your verse one, because I think my verses one and two are included in your verse one. But anyway... Um, there is a uh, quotation here early on from the book of Numbers. And then on into the psalm, there is a quotation from uh, the song of, of Deborah in, uh, in the Judges. So in, in, uh, in this verse, the exclamation is made that when Elohim, when, when Yahweh Elohim brings his army forth and grants them to battle, then his presence is with them and that there's nothing uh, the other army can do. So they, they melt, they, they drive away like smoke, they, they, they disappear because of the presence of Elohim. But let the righteous be glad. Yes, let them rejoice before Elohim. Let them rejoice exceedingly. An interesting comparison is to be made from the book of the Revelation, the Battle of Armageddon. The victorious, glorious Christ bursts forth from heaven with his armies, multitudes, saints, and angels. The forces of the evil Gentile leader at Armageddon, they have been gathered to do battle, not the least of which was to do battle with uh, Christ. The invading armies of heaven and the Christ of God who leads the charge don't have to do a thing. We compare what's written in Zechariah with what is written in the Revelation and in other couple of other uh, smaller passages to get the picture of what happens at Armageddon. Now, if we, if we put this in a contemporary perspective today, and I'm we're certainly closer to Armageddon, the Battle of Armageddon today than we were yesterday, right? Or any other time in history. So I read about a new generation of, of missiles, for example. Hyper, hypersonic, whatever they are. Read an article from Fox News a couple of days ago that China has developed a missile and apparently has deployed it that can be fired and can reach the United States in 30 minutes or less. Hypersonic, faster than the ones before. Then I read 
of a new bomber that has been developed to be B-21 or something, to be in service in the middle 2020s, can carry a bunch of nuclear hypersonic missiles, and the latest stealth technology is such that nothing in the world today can see it coming. At least that's what the article said. So practically invisible. And then, of course, there are these drones that fly off of ships and fly off, fly out of places, even in the mainland of the United States and go halfway across the world, get refueled along the way. And all these bombs and missiles and the high technology that exists. So let's just say that the Battle of Armageddon was tomorrow. All the modern weaponry that humankind can bring to bear. Just think about it. Here comes Christ. And the Bible teaches us that just the appearance of Christ, just his appearance, the radiance of glory that exudes from his persona, from his person, Kills everything on the battlefield at Armageddon. They're described like this in the Bible that their flesh melts, their the, the vitreous the vitreosity, the, the, the material of their eyeballs melt and become fluid and fall out of the sockets. When the flesh drops off immediately, melting like wax, the blood just all drops out. Everybody's blood drops. And the Bible describes it as a river of blood that is as high as the bridle of a horse. The flowing river of blood. Nobody fires a shot from the invading forces of heaven. Just the appearance of Christ. Then it says that his robe is dipped in the blood of his enemies. His robe is dipped in blood. And the picture is of a victorious king who rides his horse over the battlefield where his slain enemies are. And their blood, as his horse splashes through, spatters his garment. You combine then certain sections of the book of Daniel and other parts, then you can see that the administration of the millennial kingdom begins to be set up. Here's the connection. Like smoke is driven away, so drive them away. As wax melts before fire, the wicked will perish at the presence of Elohim, but let the righteous be glad. Yes, let them rejoice before or in the presence of Elohim. Let them rejoice exceedingly. Continuing the events that immediately follow Armageddon, All the people in the world who didn't participate in the battle, but who are still surviving and living in the world, are called before Christ into judgment. 
That's Matthew 25. Matthew 24 is the Olivet Discourse, which we're studying the, the counterpart to it in Luke right now on Sunday mornings. But then in Matthew 25, the nations are gathered, all the people from the various nations, and they're called either sheep or goats. The goats are slain. And their souls go right to hell, and there they will be for a thousand more years. Hades, the, the abode, the netherworld abode of the wicked dead. Hades. And after a thousand years, to be spewed out from the earth, and I saw the earth and the sea and all that was dead in them, give it up. Death and Hades gave up all that were in them. And the books were open. It's a thousand years later. So he calls the nations into judgment. And those who are on his right, the sheep. He says, you know what? He said, you, you saw me when I was hungry. You fed me. You saw me when I was naked and you clothed me. I was in prison and you visited me. And these who have not been consigned to Hades, Hades, say, when did we do this to you? To which he replies, you did it to the least of my brethren, therefore you did it to me. You see, in the time of the tribulation, the seven years it works up to that, people are going to be in a mess. The forces of the Antichrist are going to chase them down. If you don't have the mark of the beast, we were talking before the service, the article that came out, what was this company in Wisconsin? Was it in Wisconsin? These people who took a mark, they took a, they were chipped. <laughs> well, the penalty is death if you don't have the mark in that day. And so you have people who are hiding you have certain people who are helping hide other, other people, and especially the Israelites, the, the Jews of that day, according to Zechariah. And so they hid them and they fed them and they clothed them and they came to see them when they were in prison the best they could and tried to take care of them. And Christ said, when you did that to them, you did that to me. You did that because you have faith. And then he said, enter into the kingdom, you blessed of my father that has been prepared for you. And so they just step right of, out of tribulation, post-war, fresh out of Armageddon, and step right into the millennial kingdom. Satan is bound for a thousand years. Therefore, according to Isaiah, the world reverts back to the pre-flood days, to the pre-curse, the pre-fall days. No thorns, no thistles, no disease, no sickness. And people live hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years. And the, the curse of the animal kingdom is lifted so that a child is seen, according to Isaiah, reaching into the nest of a poisonous snake, pulling it out and playing with it. 
the lion and the lamb are laying down together. And it moves on from there, but the whole thing starts when the times of the Gentiles come to a close with the presence of Elohim. So what happens to the people who enter into the kingdom? Man, they're glad. This is sort of a type. What is happening here is they move upward to Mount Zion with the Ark of the Covenant. This is sort of a type of the people of God being gathered into the kingdom, the physical kingdom that is yet to come. Let the righteous be glad. Let them rejoice in the presence of Elohim. Let them rejoice exceedingly. So then it's a time for praise. Sing to Elohim. Sing praises to his name. Exalt him who rides in Aravot. That's you would transliterate that Arabah, Arabia, the desert, the wilderness. By his name, Yah. That's the intensified form of Yahweh. By his name, Yah. And rejoice before him. Now we have the account of that in David's life in Samuel where David's having a big time. People are singing. People are playing their instruments. And the young maidens are swirling and dancing and and happy. Sing praises. Rejoice before him. A father of the fatherless, a defender of widows. Elohim in his holy habitation. So his holy, they're, they're viewing now this temple, this temple mount. Temple's not there yet, but they're, They're taking the main thing here, the Ark of the Covenant. Elohim in his holy habitation. You see, this Ark of the Covenant, in every whit of of its existence, is an illustration of Christ. On the inside of it is the law. It's encased in wood, which reflects the humanity of Christ, which is then gilded in gold, which reflects the deity of Christ, covered by the wings of the cherubim, who bear up, as Ezekiel teaches us, the merkabah, the the chariot throne of Christ, and do his will at great speed, Almost instantly, the book of Genesis teaches us that the tree of life wasn't destroyed, even though man sinned, but it's kept. It's guarded by cherubim with flaming swords. Well, here is the Ark of the Covenant in every way describing Christ, the perfection of the law, The humanity of man, absolute deity, commanding the cherubim and the lid of that thing is the mercy seat. Day of atonement every year. The blood is sprinkled on the mercy seat. And the blood takes care of everybody. 
And that shields the curse of the law, which is on the inside, the perfection of Christ. But his blood then shields everybody from the curse of the broken law. Now, this is what they're kidding. David, in the account of Samuel, David calls it, he refers to the Ark of the Covenant as the name. It's Hebraism. He didn't know what the name of the Messiah was going to be. Jacob in Genesis 49 called him Shiloh. Shiloh. He called him Shiloh. Peace giver. Peace bringer. When he was dying and he was giving his blessings to his sons. And he came to Judah who carried within him the promise of the Christ. He was the progenitor of the Christ. And he said, Judah. And he explains to him. The scepter shall not, the, 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 the staff of kingly authority and rule, the scepter, shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet. A king would rest that scepter on the inner part of his thigh as he would listen to people. And then if his scribes could not find a similar case to settle what was brought before the king, he would make a new law. He would grab his, staff, his scepter. And when he lifted it up off of his thigh, that meant the scribe had to get busy because he was about to make a new law. The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor a lawgiver from between his feet until Shiloh comes. On his deathbed, the best thing, the best thought he had of his Christ was that he was a peace giver. David could only say he is the name. Maybe upon reflection, David writing this psalm gives all these different names that are ascribed to our great God. As he accompanies the Ark of the Covenant on its way, the righteousness and the justice of Yahweh, of Elohim, Yahweh Elohim, father of the fatherless or, or orphans. Boy, I'll never eat any more of that. And a defender of widows, Elohim and his heart. That's his, you see, in other words, Here's the job that God has given to himself. He's going to take care of people who can't take care of themselves. Elohim settles the solitary in a house. Now, I will say this. Hebrew scholars will tell you that the 68th Psalm is one of the most difficult Hebrew passages to translate. Elohim settles, you could say, the alien the foreigner, in a house. And that word is a house that means a home, a family house, where families are. Elohim settles the foreigner in a family. A guy who's alone, but it's not good for him to be alone. And Elohim works it out in his life so that he has a place. For his existence. 
He brings out prisoners into prosperity. But the rebellious dwell on a dry land. A reflection upon the escape from Egypt. Prisoners were brought to prosperity finally. But the generation that rebelled had to dwell in the wilderness, the desert. Until all of that generation except for Joshua and Caleb had passed away. Continuing on that thought, Elohim, when you went out before your people, when you marched through the wilderness, Silah, the earth shook, even the heavens dripped rain. Sonny, I was moved at the presence of Elohim, Elohim, or God, the God of Israel. We're studying about it in Exodus, the great quaking of the earth, and the laws given on Sinai. A generous or a plentiful rain you poured down, Elohim. Your heritage, which was weary, you established or you confirmed them. He sent water to them. He sent food to them. He took care of them. Your congregation dwelled in it. You provided from your goodness for the poor. Elohim, now this is the song that David and others are singing. They're playing their instruments and the young ladies are dancing around and everybody's happy. And so they're, they're lifting up the next crescendo of praise to the Lord. What else can you think of him? Adonai, now he uses the word Adonai, the term, the name. Master, owner. Master who owns me and sustains me. Adonai uttered the word. Those who proclaimed it were a great multitude or a great army. Now, the, the term those, those who, is in the feminine. So when you put it in its context, it most likely is a reference to how the armies of Israel would be coming back to their wives, and their mothers, and the women who weren't part of the fight, part of the battle, were singing the good news. All of them would tell the story of what God, what Adonai had done for them. Kings of armies flee. They flee. And she who remains at home will divide the spoil. The women of the home didn't have to fight the fight, but they shared in all of the spoils of the victory. Though you lie down among the sheepfolds, you'll be like the wings of a dove covered with silver and her feathers with brilliant gold. When today, that's, that means uh, almighty. When almighty scattered kings there in Zalmon was white as snow. That's a mountain, a high mountain had snow on it. So here's the idea. Not everybody was in the army, not, not just the women, but there were other people. Maybe they were the ones making the arrows or the spears or the shields or tending to the horses or whatever, growing the food so that the troops could be fed. Not everybody went out and fought, but everybody got to share in the glory of the victory because almighty 
had scattered the kings. A reference to Zalmon, that's a, a mountain. Several references here in this, this uh, psalm to mountains. And mountains were generally representative of different nations because, you know, this mountain way over there, that's, that's over in another nation, that's in another land. But even though Zion wasn't all that high and all that tall, it didn't matter. Zion ruled over everything. Because the one who abided therein was Tzadeh, Almighty. Even though there was a high mountain Zalmon in the distance and it was snow-capped, it didn't matter. Zion was the greatest because God was there. God's holy mountain, a mountain of Elohim, is the mountain of Bashan. The mountain of many peaks is the mountain of Bashan. Why do you fume with envy, you lofty mountains? So he personifies the mountains, which metaphorically speaks of the other nations who have other gods. This is the mountain that Elohim desires for his dwelling. So they're marching up towards Zion. He chose this one. It isn't the grandest. It isn't the biggest. But it's the one he chose. Yes, Yahweh will dwell there forever. Elohim's chariot is twice 10,000 times thousands of angels. Adonai is among them as at Sinai in his holiness. You ascended on high, you led captivity captive. You have received gifts among men, even from the rebellious that Yah Elohim might dwell there. Now there's a, there are three or four persuasions regarding verses 18 and 19. When you realize that a form of verse 19 is quoted by the Apostle Paul in Ephesians. You've, you've, you've led cap. In other words, you took captivity and made it your prisoner. Uh, in, the, in the case of Christ, death and hell and all that was wrong, it is the prisoner of Christ in the book of Ephesians. Here, some believe that the captivity brought captive by Elohim were the Israelites in Egypt, and some believe that it's the enemies of Elohim received gifts among men. But to go back to verse 18, the unnumbered chariots of angels, Adonai is among them as at Sinai in his holiness. It's quite possible that this is the only reference in the Old Testament to the ascension of Christ. If so, it gives us a glimpse into what they were seeing as Christ ascended. The Greek word to ascend that is used in the book of Acts is not so much a word that speaks of defying gravity as it is a word of being lifted up, glorified. 
Ruhm and Nassau are the Hebrew words that are used in Isaiah where he says, and I saw Yahweh. I saw the Lord high and lifted up. Well, he was greatly exalted above all else. And so this is the, this is the way that the word is used in the book of Acts. He's not just going up. Man, he's being exalted. You remember Christ prayed in John, John 17, that his disciples would see him, his glory that he enjoyed with the Father before the world ever was. This glory now, as he goes up into heaven, is being restored to God the Son. So that Christ sent his messenger to tell John to write everything that he saw and he wrote the book of the Revelation. Write in what you see. So he saw Christ like he'd never seen him, except in that brief moment of ascension, hair like wool, eyes like fire, feet like brass. He has a belt that shines more brightly than the sun. He's enthroned. And there is a circular, like a rainbow, but it's an emerald. And before him is this crystal, glassy sea and the dome above his great throne is like lapis lazuli. It's like sapphire, the glory. They'd never seen that before. He had only been a penniless carpenter and then as the resurrected Christ, he appeared as himself, only resurrected in those 40 days, but now he ascends. So then if this is a reference, a veiled reference to the ascension of Christ, the ascension of Christ being a New Testament parallel to the ascension of of the Ark of the Covenant to Mount Zion, then what the disciples saw for that moment were two walls of chariots that extended so far and there was no way to see the end of them. And Christ... Their creator, their God, moving up and out in their midst. And the resurrected Christ, having been raised from the dead, has made death his prisoner. As a matter of fact, the revelation, we read that he has the keys of death and hell. Well, okay. So, next When thinking of God and his ascension to Zion, salvation and judgment. Blessed is Adonai. The the God of our salvation. You see the word Yeshua? That's Jesus. Yeshua. Who day by day loads us with benefits. Silah. Our Ha'el is to us and Yahweh Adonai, he's everything to us. And to him belong the escapes from death. You can't escape death. You can't, you can't finally emerge, be victorious over death, except by the power of Yahweh Adonai. But Elohim will wound his enemies' heads, the hairy scalp of him who still goes in his trespasses. 
Adonai said, I will restore from Bashan. I will bring them back from the depths of the sea that your foot may crush them in blood. The tongue of your dogs will have its portion from your enemies. A promise from the Almighty that he will always have a people and that there will never be a time in history where God will not have a people. Always be there. Finally, the physical kingdom, which is then surrendered by Christ to the eternal kingdom at the close of the millennial age. So here is the procession, the procession of the ark as it makes its way to Zion. They have seen your procession, Elohim, the procession of Eli, of my God. This is the word Eli, that's the word Christ cried out from the cross. Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? The procession of my God, my king into the sanctuary. So he sees Christ, his king. This is King David saying he's my king. Singers went first. Instrumentalists followed them. And surrounding them were the circling and dancing maidens playing their timbrels. In the congregations, bless Elohim Yahweh from the womb or the fountain of Israel, from the birth of Israel, which flowed forth. So he describes as the people are coming in this procession. Look, leading the way, there's little Benjamin, their leader. It was the smallest of the tribes. The princes of Judah and their company, the princes of Zebulun and the princes of Naphtali. Elcha has commanded your strength. Your God has commanded your strength. Strengthen, Elohim, what you've done for us. Because of your temple at Jerusalem, kings will bring you gifts or tribute. This happens all the way through Solomon sporadically through the times of the kings of Judah, but magnanimously in the kingdom age. There are nations in the kingdom. The chief nation is Israel. And there are kings of those nations, but they have designated times, according to Isaiah, to bring from the production, from the prosperity, from the abundance of their nation to bring as a tribute to the Christ of God at the temple. And there, Christ teaches people. Think about that. Christ himself, God, in our presence, teaching his people his word. Rebuke the beasts of the reeds. That would be like, well, it's speaking metaphorically of Egyptians, people who lived along the, the Nile. And the beast of the reed was generally a crocodile. The herd of mighty bulls with the calves of the peoples till everyone submits himself with pieces of silver. Scatter the peoples who delight in war. Envoys will come out of Egypt. Cush will quickly stretch out his hands to Elim. So the time comes when all nations are submissive. Why? Because of the temple. The temple, the great thing that it represents, all of the work of Christ, the completed, finished work 
of Christ that is illustrated in the temple and realized in the person of the first and then second coming of Christ. So then there's this call to praise. Kingdoms of the earth sing to Elohim. Sing praises to Adonai Selah. To him who rides on the heaven of heavens which were of old. Behold he sends out his voice. A mighty voice. Ascribe strength to Elohim. His excellence is over Israel. And his strength is in the clouds. You are more awesome Elohim than your sanctuary. God of Israel is he who gives strength and power to his people. Blessed be Elohim. And that was the praise and the song as they made their way with the Ark of the Covenant to the top of Zion. We're in a time yet to come under Solomon, the temple would be built. Okay, we'll stop there and have our uh, deacon prayer time.